I don't want you to get nervous because when the clock says something, I respect time. And I'm assuming since I'm starting 10 minutes late, I have 10 minutes extra. So don't think I'm just like going on past the 15 minutes after the hour mark. Is that correct? All right. That way y'all just pay attention and let me focus on the clock. You can focus on the word, um, which I will also be focusing on. So with that being said, go and turn your Bible to 2 Kings chapter 5. And as you're heading to 2 Kings 5, I just want to put in a, a second um, mention of this, uh, the Missionary Prayer Handbook. Again, there's a limited number, and I know Calvin gave specifics, one per family. Um, but if you don't have one, please do uh, work through and pray for the, uh, these families. Um, and, and I just want to make mention of an additional prayer resource back on our table. You already know the book is back there, What If Jesus Meant What He Said. And by the way, that's a discipleship book. So if you're discipling somebody, it was written to specifically walk in a discipleship relationship. And let me say this as nicely as I can biblically. If you're not discipling somebody, you're being directly disobedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's as nice as I can say it. And there's no debate to be had on that. It's just what he said. Go and make disciples. So I want to challenge you. Who are you discipling right now? And if not, we can talk about it or most importantly, get on your knees and ask the Lord who would he have you disciple but I did want to mention there's also a prayer guide we have back on our table. Um, these are free, absolutely free. Please take one. And I mentioned it last night. It's worth mentioning again. Please do not say to me ever, it's the least I can do in praying for you. It's not the least you can do. It's by far the most you can do. Please pray. Prayer is powerful. And, and the week of prayer, y'all are in the area do not miss it. Um, whether you're here, you can also tune in online um, and be praying from wherever you're at. I love that about the Lord, um, that geography is not an issue with him. So if you're like me and you're far from Florida, I'll still be tuning into the week of prayer and joining you um, there. Let's just open in prayer during this session, and then I'm asking the Lord specifically to do um, a few things. Father, I'm excited about the next uh, 37 minutes. I'm looking forward to what you're going to do in our lives. And my prayer is that you would start in my own life. Lord, I'm not speaking to anybody here as though I've obtained. You and I know very well that is not the case. But your word is powerful and it's true. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And the intention of it is to change our lives. So God, I'm asking you to do exactly that, nothing short of that. In fact, I pray that no one would be able to leave here the same. And if in fact they are leaving the same, I know that means that we rejected your word because your word does not keep us in neutral. So God, have your way. And me as a human speaking, I pray if I say anything that's not guided by you, have mercy on everyone here and wipe it from their minds. But whatever is from you, make it so heavy on hearts that they cannot get it off their mind until they respond. And one final request I have from you, Lord, is that Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ gets all the glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I want to discuss uh, the topic of the art of the wasted life. The art of the wasted life. You could all say the heart of the wasted life, but I'll, let's go with the art. The art of the wasted life. I basically want to show you an example in scripture and teach you how to waste your life. You say, that's really a helpful message. 
I think it will be, because this is what I'm concerned about, and again, I speak to myself. I would be concerned that there may be, and, and that's facetious to see, say maybe, because there mm, most definitely is maybe obnoxious, but many of us are wasting our lives. I didn't say every aspect of our lives, but precious aspects that the Lord has given us to use for eternity. And we're going to see the example coming from a, a man in Scripture who had every opportunity to have a life well spent. This man was, if I could say, the sidekick of one of the greatest prophets in the Word of God. And if you were here last night, you know which prophet, the prophet Elisha. One who's recorded of doing more miracles than any other. A clear picture of Jesus Christ. And yet, despite his association, we are going to see that this man makes very poor decisions. But before we are too critical on him, I must examine my own heart and say, am I making those same decisions? And so with that said, Second Kings 5... We have three major characters. I'm not counting Elisha as a major character, but we want to focus in just on the last character. Now, if you normally hear a message on 2 Kings 5, you're hearing a message on Naaman. I'm really not going to say much about Naaman whatsoever. In fact, we're going to really pass right over him. But you do need to know the context of the chapter. So I'm going to go on a whirlwind journey of about five minutes to get us in the context of the chapter. And then we'll get to verse 20. And from verse 20 onward, we aim to look at 11 aspects. I know you're thinking you're not going to cover 11 aspects. 11 aspects to the art of the wasted life. So with that said... 2 Kings chapter 5. Look at the very beginning. It starts with the word Naaman. Number one, big character. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor. Because by him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor. Wow, we've got this amazing character. But my friends, you can have everything the world has to offer. But notice that last line of verse 1. But he was a leper. He was dying. I don't know how many lepers you've encountered in your life. I, I've encountered a decent amount, but I remember the most vivid picture I have of a leper was in Calcutta, India. And I was uh, there working at a, at a home. And, uh, and I remember walking and seeing this man whose appendages had been completely eaten away by leprosy. Arms and legs are gone. He's got four nubs. And he's literally dying, but he's got a tin can in his mouth and he's rolling on his torso down the street begging. Now, clearly, if you're rolling with a tin can in your mouth, even if you have money, it's not going to stay in the can itself. But you get the picture. Leprosy is not just a disease that kills you. It kills you by robbing you of every bit of your dignity in the process. And the point being is it does not matter what the status of Naaman was. Because that last line overshadows it all, but he's a leper. And let me just say this, though I'll come back to it. It doesn't really matter what you have in this world, my friends. You're going to die. You say, wow, you have the gift of encouragement. <laughs> Eternity's on the threshold. Let's not be naive. Two people I know, I know uh, died today, just as an example. Not that... Old one was a mother, breast cancer, leaving kids behind. Another one was a, a man, about 70. But what's the point? <laughs> Reality needs to be addressed. 
but he was a leper. So what goes on next? That's character number one. Then look what happens in verse two. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who's in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord. He said, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. Pause there. This is amazing. I wish I could just preach on this girl right now because this girl is absolutely an example in our culture today. If anybody ever had the right to have a victim mentality, it would have been this girl. She was literally trafficked, taken in war by this man. I mean, I don't know what kind of abuse she suffered, but I'm sure there were many forms of abuse. She ends up as a servant or a slave in their home. If anybody has the right to say, I don't care about Naaman, I'm glad he's dying. May leprosy rob him of everything he has. It would be this girl. But listen, that is not the attitude God has. We live in a me too world. We live in a world where we want to somehow have our entitlement and our rights. But let me tell you right now, if you belong to Jesus Christ, and that is a big if. If you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, it says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Colossians 3, 3 says, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. Listen carefully. If you belong to Jesus, Christ is your life. It's no longer about you having rights and you being defended and you getting your way. I'm sorry. You might be an American, but I sure hope you're a citizen of heaven before you're an American. And what I know about being a citizen of heaven is I'm an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And the message I am seeking to proclaim and defend is his name and his name alone. This girl did not have a victim mentality. When she saw a man suffering, even though it was the man that wronged her, she said, I know where you can find salvation. That's love. And that's a girl that gets it. And I pray the American church will get it. If the focus is on us, it won't be on Jesus. But we're not talking about her either, really. I just want you to see how amazing of a character she is. You want to know what's maybe even more amazing? <laughs> Her life. You say, how do you know her life? Like, you don't know anything about her life. I know a lot about her life. You know why? Because Naaman believed her. To me, it sounds like a trap. I mean, I don't know. Like this girl I just took as a slave is saying, oh, I know where you can find. Go to your enemies. And in your enemy's land, there's this guy that will heal you. That sounds pretty fishy to me. I don't know. Are you guys being logical with me right now? Are you like, are are you there? Hello? This is kind of obvious. And yet he says, hmm, I'm in. What a testimony this girl had. She must have been faithful. She must have been consistent and caring and compassionate to Naaman and Naaman's wife. Let me ask you, does your life make people believe the gospel? When they see you, do they say, yeah, I definitely want what you have? Or is it just a message we preach with our lips, but our life is shut up? But again, we're not focused on her. Let's keep moving. What do we see him take with him? This is fascinating because it's going to come back later. He takes 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. 
Uh, I like to do math in the Bible. I like to figure out what things look like in today's context. Do you know how much silver that is? In in the market of silver today, that's about $200,000 worth of silver. So that's a decent amount of silver. 2K, it'll get you half a house here, right? All right, so that's a decent amount of silver. But then the gold, how much money is that gold? About $3.1 million. So we're talking $3.3 million he's carrying with him as a gift to the king. And then in addition to that, he's got 10 changes of clothing. I guess it all depends on what store that clothing comes from. But, you know, throw whatever monetary you want. I'm just going to skip the clothing. Let's just go with $3.3 million for right now. So now he's on his way. Now, the rest of the story you can read in between. He goes, and Elisha's a very humble man. Doesn't even come to the door. In fact, his servant does. And his servant's who we're going to be talking about, Gehazi. Gehazi comes to the door, answers the door. Basically, uh, there's a message saying, go down to the Jordan, dunk seven times, you're going to be healed. There's a whole dispute that happens. Why the Jordan? Why muddy water? That's not what I'm preaching on. Here's the point, though. He goes down, even though he's hesitant, and he's healed in the waters of the Jordan. That's what you need to know. And you need to know this, that when he goes back to Elisha, he tries to give Elisha $3.3 million in some clothing. And you know what Elisha says? He says, these are my own words. You read the story. He says, what God gives for free, I can't accept payment for. You see, it's by grace that you're saved. The waters of Jordan, that wasn't about me doing something magical. That was God saying, I'm going to heal you. Just like God will heal anybody from their sin who come to Jesus Christ for repentance and say, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. I want the eternal life you're offering. There's no payment for it. You could never pay enough. But with that being said, we have Gehazi, and let's pick up in verse 20, and now we begin where we want to focus. This is a very sobering message, my friends. I'm just warning you now, but please take it to heart, and may the Lord speak conviction where we need it. Verse 20, actually verse 19, but, with the word but, so we're halfway through there. But when Naaman had gone from him, that's Elisha, a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, in not accepting from his hand what he brought. $3.3 million. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from his chariot to meet him and said, is all well? And he said, all is well. My master has sent me to say, there have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim, two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, oh, be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants and they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and, but sorry, he took them from his hand and put them in the house and he sent the men away and they departed. Verse 25, he went in and stood before his master and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? He said, your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you 
and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. And this is the word of the Lord. So let's look at a, these few aspects, and, and I, I give liberty for me to skip a couple um, if uh, time does not allow. So let's go. The first thing I want you to see is Gehazi's discontentment. That's word number one, his discontentment. We see that in verse 19. It, it tells us when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, those words, a short distance. That's basically as far as the eye can see. That's kind of the, the Hebrew idea of that, a short distance. There was discontentment in Gehazi's heart. You see, what he saw is he saw value running away. He was not content with the life he was living. And my friends, that is the first step to a wasted life, is when we as believers don't live in contentment in the gospel, contentment in who God is. It does not mean that we're not pursuing things in this life. It does not mean that we're not being diligent in our work. It does not mean that we don't have dreams and visions and goals. But listen, contentment is a basic tenet of living in Christ. To be satisfied with your relationship with Him. But discontentment, wow, discontentment in the life of a believer leads to worry. It leads to complaining. And what is complaining? Complaining, I'll give you the definition of complaining. Complaining is to boldly declare that your God is not fully good. When you complain, you're saying, I just need to let everybody know my God's not fully good. When you worry, you're preparing for God not to be good in the future. Discontentment. Second thing, look at verse 20. He says, after he sees him go a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this name in the Syrian and not accepting from his hand what he brought. The second thing, if we have discontentment, is desire. We start to have desire in places that, frankly, are just, let's say, kind of worthless in the end. He says, see, those, that word see, see, focus your eyes, focus your eyes. This is a tactic of the enemy all the way back from Genesis chapter 3. He wants us to focus on the things that we don't have. He wants us to focus on the pursuits of the world because, listen, the way that God made us is very interesting. If I say focus on me and you're focused on me, okay, that's a fact right there. But now if I say, all right, I want you to focus on me and I want you to focus on the clock, you are not going to focus on both simultaneously. We simply don't have the capacity to do so. God made us that way because focus, perspective, Fixing our eyes is a very key principle in scripture. But when we are focused on seeing, when we let our desire rest on what we don't have rather than on who we do have, we're going to be heading down this road of the art of a wasted life. But we're not there yet. Just starting out. The third thing I want you to quickly notice is also in verse 20. He says, see, my master has spared this name in the Syrian, right? And now go on down. As the Lord lives, don't you love it? He's bringing the Lord into this. As the Lord lives, I will run after him. Okay, pause. I will. The words, I will. The third thing is this. There is a decision made, being made. I will. He hasn't done it yet. He's going to do it. But he says, I will do it. This is, this is huge. Please understand, you're not living your life by accident. You're not pursuing the things you're pursuing by accident. 
Your time consumption in your job is not by accident. Your, uh, your, your addiction to video games is not by accident. Your binge watching of Netflix is not by accident. I'm telling you, you're not living an accidental life. Don't think that and don't blame God for it. We make a decision and that decision maybe incorporates many elements, but we say, I will run after that. Now, you might not have ever said, man, I am intentionally going to waste my life by spending three hours a day or eight hours a day in some form of media consumption, and I'm going to ignore the reading of God's word. You might not have that written in your journal. You made the decision. You said, I'll do it. I will. I will. I will. Let me ask you, what are your I wills right now? Are you saying, I will make sure that all my close friends know the gospel clearly? I will devote at least 15 minutes a day on my knees to pray for the unreached of the world. What are your I wills? Well, he made a decision. He said, I will run after him. But notice, it's not just that. I want you to see his diligence. I will run. He didn't say, I will go. He didn't say, I will walk. He said, I will run. He was diligent. And let me just commend America for their diligence. We don't do things half-hearted, do we? We are all in. When you see the addictions of this culture, we are incredibly intense in how consumed we become with things. We're running. Problem is, is oftentimes we're running the wrong way. But we're running. I want to ask, not just the decisions you're making, but where does your diligence lie? What are you running after? Let me ask you a different question. What would it look like for you to run after the mission of God? I didn't say you need to change the job you're in. Just what would it look like in that job to run after God's mission? I'm not saying that that, that there needs to be some kind of, let's say, structural change the way things look. But what would it look like to run after God in your family? What would it look like to run after God in your finances? What would it look like to run after God in your priorities? What would it look like to run after God in the way you set your schedule? What would it look like to be diligent in your walk with the Lord? The art of a wasted life decides to run after things. That are worthless. Two things are going to last for eternity, my friends. Two things. Souls and the word of God. You invest in those things, you'll have a life that's well used. You don't You live for those things, your life is quite wasted. So the fourth thing we uh, we saw is his diligence. But then I, I want us to notice something else. And this one is one of the saddest things for me personally. Because I see this all the time in my generation. Now, now I'm 35 at this point, so maybe it's no longer my generation. I like to think of myself as young, but frankly, I'm getting old. But I see this in the generation of the 18 to 30. Listen to these two words. If, if you don't find these words tragic, please read it, read it, read it over and over again until you find it tragic. Are you ready for this? What does Gehazi say? I will run after him and get something from him. Those two words. Get something. Just get something. He doesn't even know what he wants. Let me ask you, what do you want from the world? Those of you who are not living for the mission of God, you're not investing your life in eternal things. Tell me now, what do you want? What is it? 
Write it down. What do you want? Is a million dollars enough? Is five million enough? Is this popular enough? Do you want to max out friends on Facebook? Like, what are you looking for? I don't know. Are you just getting something and the something is never enough? It's not something, something. It's just something. I mean, come on, guys, please wake up to the reality of how we're living. We're living for something when someone died for us and says, I'm your life. Eternity is on the threshold. But are we wasting our life? We're great at this art. And that's why we see his desperation. Get something. Just get something. My friends, I pray that your desperation turns to a different form of desperation. A desperation to see the gospel go into all the world. A desperation for souls to know him. A desperation that every element of your life be invested into what will matter. But this next one brings out something that that Mike was alluding to. The sixth thing is this. His distortion. His distortion. What's distorted? And this is really tragic as well. Gehazi follows Naaman, right? He has this whole conversation. Is it well? And and then what does he say? He says, my master has sent me to say that, you know, these guys have come, basically Bible school students. And he's like, give me a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. Why is the distortion there? Well, let me tell you what I mean by distortion. Remember how Elisha had emphasized that healing is free? Remember how he said money has nothing to do with what you came to get? Now all of a sudden there's distortion coming in because there's a confusion in the gospel message because now Gehazi says, Elisha sent me, Elisha did not send him, Elisha sent me to get something from you. It's for someone else, but now that you brought the money, you might as well give a little bit of it. $40,000, some clothes. I want to ask you some very serious questions, but really I'm just asking myself and you can listen in. Is your life distorting the gospel in any way? What I mean is, are are you confusing the message of the gospel by the way you're living your life? You're saying Christ is worth everything, but your life shows that actually your comfort zone is worth everything. Are you saying Christ is worth everything, but... (laughs) (laughs) not only is he not the priority of your day, not only is he not the priority of your life, he's really just something that's added in when convenient. When you, if, if I asked your kids, what do your parents live for? Would they say, hands down, my parents live for the glory of God in everything. He must be preeminent. Please, I'm not asking these questions to make anyone feel bad. Let me remind you, condemnation comes from the enemy of your soul. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. If you're being convicted, get super excited because that's what he does to his children. To mold them, to make them look like Jesus. That's positive. All the way positive, positive, positive. So conviction, get excited. If you're not being convicted, get really concerned. And I'd love to share the gospel more with you after that you might be saved. Distortion. There's another thing after we see distortion, and maybe I should have mentioned this before because chronologically it is before, and I'm not going to really focus on it, but you see his deception. 
You saw his deception, right? What, what does he do? Uh, he, he lies to them, basically. Uh, I just want to ask a simple question on this. I'm not going to focus here. Is there anywhere in your life where there's darkness? When I say darkness, I'm not necessarily even saying sin, but I, I would suggest it is a sinful area. I asked my wife this this last week. We just saw, and, and I'm not going into this, but we, I saw another uh, friend, well, not even a friend of mine, a friend of a very close friend who uh, just had this hidden sin in their life, and it came out, and um, now there's a court case and all this. And I just... I went to my wife and I said, Priyanka, we have to live in the light in every area of our life. Is there anywhere that there's darkness? I, I, again, not necessarily sin, just darkness where we're not seeing it, where others aren't seeing it, where the light of Christ is not shining into that area. Is there darkness? Because that's what I see with deception. It, it, deception sometimes is partial truths, but it's not the full truth. I had to confess to my wife. It was very shameful. I'm sharing it with you, but it was very shameful. I had to confess to my wife something I had said to her that was true, but it was not the full truth, so that therefore it was a lie. Can you imagine lying to your wife and now I'm preaching to you? What? She's telling you there was darkness in that situation. I said, I'm so sorry. Deception. Deception is part of the art of wasting your life. You live in deception, it's only going to increase more and more and more. Let's go on, though. After deception, distortion, what do we see here? Well, we see dishonesty. Look at verse 25. So he finally comes back to Elisha. Elisha says, where have you been, Gehazi? And he says, your servant went nowhere. He went nowhere. Now, now you might say that's kind of a silly answer, but actually it's kind of a true answer, too. Because listen, in life, if you're pursuing the things of the world, you are going nowhere. Hey, it might be somewhere, but it's somewhere that's nowhere. But still, obviously here, it's also very much a lie. He had a destination he had gone to, and yet here he's declaring he's going nowhere. I, uh, I want to kind of take a step back at this point, and I want to kind of go back to our dishonesty, distortion, these elements of our life that maybe hide the truth. And I want to talk about how serious this is. There was a hymn written many years ago by a guy named Philip Bliss. You probably are familiar with Philip Bliss because he's written many hymns. But there's a hymn that uh, I don't want to suggest the older people are the only ones that know it. But I'm going to guess a lot of you younger folks don't know that well. But the story behind it is quite amazing. Uh, Dwight L. Moody was preaching at this meeting. and He used an illustration and if you've ever seen the Cleveland Harbor, yes, Cleveland does have a harbor as it's right on a lake, okay? Uh, if you've seen the Cleveland Harbor, it's got an interesting port, um, but the port actually, if you could see under the water, there's a very narrow channel that leads into the port, so it can be somewhat dangerous. And uh, Moody was sharing a story about this stormy night, starless night. It was dark, dark, dark. And this uh, pilot, the ship pilot was trying to bring a ship into the harbor. But as he brought the ship into the harbor, there was a conversation between the pilot and the captain of the ship. And listen to what they said. The captain said, are you sure this is the Cleveland Harbor? And the pilot says, I'm quite sure, sir. Then the captain said, but where are the lower lights? Now, you might say, what is a lower light? Well, there's a main lighthouse, right? 
But with the main lighthouse, there also were these lower lights. And basically, the lower lights connected at nighttime so you knew you went in between them, okay? So the lighthouse is shining, but the lower lights say it's guiding you between. Where are the lower lights, the captain said. The pilot said they've gone out. The captain said, can you make the harbor? Well, the problem was they'd already gone too far to where they could. Because of the storm, they couldn't move the helm, and, and they had to go for it. So the pilot said, we have to go for it at this point. We're going to either make it or we're going to perish, sir. And they tried to get into the harbor, but despite the strong heart and the brave hand of the pilot, he missed the channel. He crashed the ship into the rocks and it sank quickly and many of the sailors went to their grave that night. Moody made the application at that time that God has positioned us on the shores of this world. He's the lighthouse. But we are the light of the world. He's positioned us on the shores. And our job is to guide wanderers home. To be the lower lights that others can look to and see the ways. And so Philip picked up his pen and he wrote these words. Listen, brightly beams our father's mercy from his lighthouse evermore. But to us, he gives the keeping of the lights along the shore. Dark the night of sin has settled. Loud the angry billows roar. Eager eyes, listen, eager eyes are watching, longing. Like Mike said, people want to hear. Eager eyes are watching, longing for the lights along the shore. Let the lower lights be burning. Send a gleam across the wave. Some poor, fainting, struggling seaman, you may rescue, you may save. And I love this, this last verse. Trim your feeble lamp, my brother. Some poor sailor, tempest-tossed, trying now to make the harbor in the darkness may be lost. Let the lower lights be burning. Send a gleam across the wave. Some poor, fainting, struggling seaman, you may rescue, you may save. I want to ask you, is your light burning? Because people are looking. But are you darkness? Are you darkness when people look at you? They're just more confused than ever saying you have that message, but your life says that you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. People don't light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, it gives light to all who are in the house. Therefore, let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. But I have a one final one I want to mention. I'll stop there. I want you to see in this whole story the destination of a wasted life. The destination of Gehazi. And we see it come out. Look what it says as we go down to verse 26. Elisha says, Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? And then look at that last verse. Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So we went out from his presence, a leper like snow. Let, let me remind you, what did Gehazi want in this story? I'll make it simple. Gehazi wanted Naaman's life. That's what he wanted. <laughs> he wanted the 3.3 million, right? He wanted those clothes. He wanted Naaman's position. He wanted Naaman's life. All right, we've got that. But now let's think further. The last verse of the chapter he got it. All of it. He got Naaman's silver. He got Naaman's clothing. 
And he got Naaman's leprosy, didn't he? He got what he wanted. Remember David? I think it's Psalm 73. Why do the wicked prosper? Why do they have all this stuff? And then halfway through, he's like, but I saw their end. The destination of a wasted life. The ultimate wasted life is a life that never repents and comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ. But I find it quite tragic when we know the Lord Jesus Christ and we still choose to live for things that just don't matter. And lives around us have no light on shore that's guiding them between that lower light and the lighthouse. We have a responsibility. Please, my sisters, my brothers, let's take this seriously. The destination What are we seeking? Whose life are we desiring to live? Did you notice Elisha's words? He says, was it a time? (laughs) Let me ask you, is it the time to build the American dream? Has 26,000 people die every day from starvation and malnutrition? Is it really time? (laughs) Is it time? Please be honest before the Holy Spirit. Is it time? Is it time? To secure a good retirement portfolio when 40% of our world still haven't heard the gospel? So you're preparing for your retirement. Wait, when souls are going to eternity today? Oh, you don't like what I'm saying. You want me to walk out right now? I'll give you the invitation. You can leave. And I say that in love because I have more questions. Please let the Holy Spirit decide. Not, not, Not what I'm saying not what you want me to say or not what you want to think. Is it time? Do you think the Holy Spirit would say the same thing to us today? I think he would say the same thing to me. I'm being very convicted right now. I want you to know I'm very uncomfortable. Because I know James 3.1. It makes me very uncomfortable. Is it time to binge watch another season of Netflix while my prayer closet grows cobwebs? Is it time to continue feasting on earthly food at the expense of spiritual starvation? Is it time to stand for a political party at the expense of compromising God's word? I didn't say don't vote. I didn't say don't have positions. I did not say don't stand for truth. That's not what I said. So please don't misinterpret what I said. I said, is it time to stand for a party? And risk compromising truth. That's what I said. You can get the recording if you're wondering what I said. So you don't have to misquote that. Is it time to require safety in our life at the expense of leaving the cross not taken up? I want to close with an illustration. And I do still have my three minutes left. So I'm within my parameters. All right. 37 down. Three to go. Please listen very carefully to these words. They were written in 1966, not by so-called Christian artists, although I really don't think Christian should so much be an adjective that we're throwing on uh, nouns nowadays. But that being said, it certainly would classify as a secular song. I didn't know it till recently, but maybe some of you listen to Simon and Garfunkel. Don't worry, I'm not saying anything negative about their music. I'm just using one of their songs as an illustration. And they had a song that came out. I think the album was called Sounds of Silence. Don't quote me on that, but I think that's what it was. And the song is about a man named Richard Corey. I want you to listen to these words because I think these words could have been sung by Gehazi. And sadly, I think they could be sung by some of us today. 
They say that Richard Corey owns one half of this whole town with political connections to spread his wealth around. Born into society, a banker's only child. He had everything a man could want, power, grace, and style. But I, I work in his factory, and I curse the life I'm living, and I curse my poverty, and I, I wish I could be, oh, I wish that I could be, I wish I could be Richard Corey. The papers, they print his picture almost everywhere he goes. Richard Corey at the opera, Richard Corey at the show, and the rumor of his parties and the orgies on his yacht. Oh, he surely must be happy with all everything he's got. But I, I work in his factory, and I curse the life I'm living, and I curse my poverty, and I wish I could be, oh, I wish I could be. Richard Corey. You see, he freely gave to charity. He had the common touch. And they were grateful for his patronage. And they they thanked him very much. So my mind was filled with wonder when the evening headlines read, Richard Corey went home last night and put a bullet through his head. But I, I work in his factory. And I curse the life I'm living, and I curse my poverty. And I wish that I could be, oh, I wish that I could be, oh, I wish I could be Richard Corey. Are we really wanting what the world has? Are we short-sighted like Gehazi? I've said it once, and I'll say it one more time. Eternity is on the threshold. hundred years from now, less than that, we're all gone from the life we're currently living. Today was the day for two of my friends to say goodbye to this life forever. Are you living for something or are you living for someone? Because only one life will soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. And oh, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. Let's pray. Father, I pray that no one here, and I pray for myself, I pray that no one here would waste the precious life they've been given. But I pray that we would invest in things that matter, knowing that Jesus Christ is coming soon. And to that I say, even so, Come, Lord Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen.